This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Mark Joseph Stern, how confident are you in how the Supreme Court is going to rule when it comes to abortion? My confidence level is high. Like off the charts high? No, not off the charts high. That's, I, I mean, you know, pride goeth before the fall. I can't ever say that. Uh, but I, I I would say I am pretty confident. I would bet a reasonable sum of money on the outcome that I have in mind. Okay, the, and the outcome you think? Is that the Supreme Court will overturn Roe v. Wade. This is a weird time to be Mark Joseph Stern. Slate's Supreme Court reporter. For years, he's been saying how extreme the court's getting. He's marveled at the way the justices have been quietly steamrolling over precedent. And when he dialed into last week's oral arguments, where the state of Mississippi was asking the court to uphold a ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy, it felt a little like an I told you so moment. <laughs> I feel like some people owe me an apology, to be, to be frank. But of course, I don't like being right. I hate being right. It is a curse to be right. I love it when I'm wrong. And I wish I had been wrong about this one. I mean, you said the justices on Wednesday showed their cards. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, they kind of dropped the pretense that they had been maintaining for several years now. When I say they, I'm mostly talking about Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. And with Barrett and Kavanaugh in particular, you know, it wasn't that long ago that they went before the Senate Judiciary Committee. They testified under oath about Roe. They said it had been settled law for nearly half a century and did not even hint that they would consider overturning it. And yet, During oral arguments last week, Barrett and Kavanaugh seemed to have had a change of heart. I want to be uh, clear about what you're arguing and not arguing. Um, First, Justice Kavanaugh pointed out that overturning Roe versus Wade wouldn't ban abortion. It would simply let each state independently decide how they wanted to deal with the issue. And so for the, uh, if you were to prevail, um, the states... Uh, majority of states or states still could or and presumably would continue to freely allow abortion. Many states, some states would be able to do that even if you prevail on, under your view. Is that correct? That's consistent with our view, Your Honor. It's, it's one that... Um, then Justice Barrett started talking about adoption, arguing women could simply carry their pregnancies to term and then relinquish their parental rights instead of getting an abortion. So just to summarize, six out of 10 Americans think abortion should be legal. But these justices are hinting that the precedent that allows abortion to take place is about to be overturned. Both of them sounded like they have despised Roe for a very long time, wanted to overturn Roe for a very long time. And now that they have the opportunity before them, they're not going to wait. They're not going to dawdle. They are ready to do this now. 
Today on the show, how the Supreme Court got here. It took decades, involved rigid commitments. With the future of abortion at stake, can progressives learn from this kind of discipline? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Overturning Roe versus Wade has been a goal of conservative legal thinkers for decades. But for Mark Joseph Stern, the funny thing is how much effort it's taken to get to this place, to the brink of triumph. To understand what he means, he says, just look back at the last time Roe versus Wade was under threat at the Supreme Court. The year was 1992. The case was Planned Parenthood versus Casey. The plaintiffs were challenging abortion restrictions in Pennsylvania that required parental consent for minors, spousal notice, and a waiting period before an abortion. Planned Parenthood versus Casey was supposed to be the death knell of Roe v. Wade. Um, The Supreme Court had eight Republican appointees and one Democratic appointee, and that one Democratic appointee opposed abortion and dissented in Roe. So it looks pretty bad for Roe versus Wade. Yeah, it looks terrible. And what's interesting is that the advocates defending abortion rights in that case made a very conscious choice not to try to seek out a compromise and instead to say it's all or nothing. We are asking for an up or down vote on whether Roe will survive. They wanted to kind of make this a referendum because they felt like all hope was lost, understandably. But that's not what happened. Um, What happened was that during oral arguments, um, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who had really um, kind of viciously attacked abortion rights in the past, and Justice Anthony Kennedy, who had done the same, they started searching out a compromise. And they started asking the advocate, Catherine Colbert, like, uh, well, do we have to just uphold this really stringent and rigid regime? Or can we come to an agreement that gives more leeway to the people, to state legislatures, but still protect some core rights? And that is exactly what five Republican-appointed justices ended up doing. The decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey kept the core of Roe versus Wade intact, but it allowed states the ability to place restrictions on abortion as long as there wasn't an undue burden placed on the person seeking abortion care. And a lot of their logic is because there was precedent like an entire generation had come of age relying on Roe versus Wade to make their reproductive decisions. And so they kind of crafted an argument that we would be ripping the rug out from under these young people by overturning it. Exactly right. Um, you know, this is the the strongest 
reason to uh, affirm precedent. It's called reliance interests. Uh, often it is the deciding factor. The court says we'll have people come to rely on our past decisions. And in Casey, uh, the, the justices said, well, of course they have. I mean, people have ordered their lives around the possibility um, of terminating an unwanted pregnancy. People have made incredibly intimate and important decisions relying on Roe. And if we overturn it now, we will be kind of betraying them. And that will not only uh, damage our legitimacy in the eyes of the country, but it will actively harm a lot of women who have used this decision to gain a foothold in what the court called the social and economic life of the nation. Conservatives saw this decision. How did they respond? So it the the trauma inflicted on the conservative legal movement by Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, is almost impossible to overstate. <laughs> this was perceived as a complete and total betrayal because even by 1992, the number one goal of the conservative legal movement was to overturn Roe. Uh, Ronald Reagan spent eight years trying to do it. George H.W. Bush spent the next four years trying to do it. Um, they were all in for uh, a eviscerating abortion rights. Um, and they felt like they had their men and women on the court ready to do it. Like I said, eight Republicans on that bench. So this anger, this anger becomes very apparent. And I'm wondering if you can tell me how that anger was marshaled. Like if, if a certain brand of conservative realizes we're not having a lot of success getting people on the court to kind of stick with the principles we think they came in with, how do they get around that? A lot of organizing that was uh, financed with uh, a lot of cash. Um, so it, it, throughout the 90s and into the George W. Bush administration, the conservative legal movement really transforms from a somewhat loose but uh, cohesive group of folks to a kind of powerhouse movement that has an ATM of dark money at its disposal, that has allies on every faculty, um, and that increasingly was putting judges on the bench. And the, the end goal of this movement was to create not just a litmus test, but almost a breed of lawyer who could be trusted to stick to their guns, so to speak, once they were elevated to the judiciary um, and, and to continue to enforce those principles that they had espoused. One of the main drivers of this powerhouse movement was a group called the Federalist Society. It's a kind of fraternity for conservative lawyers, really well-funded, a place to share ideas and rub elbows with high-powered judges and lawyers while you're still in law school. It also became a place where you could prove your conservative bona fides, basically a years-long vetting process. Every conservative judge on the bench of the Supreme Court had some kind of ties to the group. I always like to say that, like, Neil Gorsuch was hatched in a Federalist Society lab. <laughs> I know and you that do. is not that much of an exaggeration. <laughs> Gorsuch might disagree. 
<laughs> well, I don't I don't think his hair would be so perfect if he were truly hatched in a lab. But I, I, I think, you know, from day one, law students are told, you know, if you want to kind of join the rebels, because they, they frame themselves as being kind of countercultural and cool. They say, you know, if you don't want to go along with the pack, join us. We're a little bit naughty. We're a little bit outre. And we're here to change the world. And that's very appealing. That's what brought in people like Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, as soon as you've kind of joined that movement, you're you're boosted up and up and up through the ranks um, and encouraged to hold fast to your beliefs and never, ever, ever change them. There were a couple of moments where I felt like you could really see just how much power the Federalist Society had gotten. Like one was back in 2005, George W. Bush had a Supreme Court vacancy that he was trying to fill. And he nominated the White House lawyer, Harriet Myers. And that did not work. Can you tell me why? Like what happened here? People in the know, in the in this movement, looked at her, just took one glance and said, she's a squish. Moving on to Washington, it's only been two days since President Bush nominated Harriet Myers to the Supreme Court. And already she's under attack from the usual leftist kooks. There's no way this woman is qualified for the United States Supreme Court. Yes, Bush's normally solid right-wing base is complaining loudly about the appointment, saying Meyer's views are unknown on hot-button topics ranging from abortion to gay marriage to both of those. You know, she doesn't have a documented aversion to Roe v. Wade and all of these other progressive precedents. And if you don't go on the court absolutely loathing Roe, then you can't be trusted to cast the vote to overturn it. Um, And there were some other reasons. Apparently, she was not that bright. Apparently, she was not that well-read in the law. But the main justification for tanking that nomination among Republicans was, you know, she's just not trustworthy. She's not one of us. She came up in a different movement. We can't uh, trust her to go do the right thing once she dons that black robe. And then that's how we got Justice Alito, right? Who remains the worst Supreme Court justice in my book after three Trump nominees? <laughs> I don't know nominees, if you could say that, Mark. The worst. I I have respect for for someone like Neil Gorsuch. I, I even have respect for Amy Coney Barrett. These people they kind of earn their stripes, and and they do occasionally buck the orthodoxy. Alito would never, ever do that. His jurisprudence is always in perfect alignment with the most recent Republican Party platform. And that is why he is a perfect Federalist Society judge. And and that is why in my book, he's just the goddamn worst. (laughs) For over three decades, the Federalist Society developed its reputation as the place to go to plant your flag as a conservative lawyer. And all that work and branding culminated in 2016. It was the middle of the Republican presidential primary. Justice Antonin Scalia had just died unexpectedly, which is when Donald Trump, then still a candidate for president, came out with a list. Yeah, I will do it now if you'd like yeah, me to read them. I, think, I can read them. I, oh, but these are okay. highly respected conservative people. Uh, again, Federalist, Federalist Society and uh, others, and others with the input. Uh, this was a list of judges that he could place on the Supreme Court should he be elected. 
all of these names were vetted by the Federalist Society. You are a constitutionalist. Correct. Correct. And I'm also, I want high intellect. I want great intellect. These people are all of very high, high intellect. Uh, they're pro-life. Uh, we will keep people within this general realm. And this will have an impact for generations to come. Oh, generations. And I would say... And I think that list uh, may be the thing that won him the presidency um, because there were a lot of conservatives who were focused on the courts who just didn't believe that Trump would go along with what they wanted, who were convinced that he would go in there and name like Miss Tennessee to the Supreme Court um, because he was so unpredictable and so wacky. And when he put out that list, which was compiled in close collaboration with the Federalist Society, they all realized he gets it. You know, he may be totally crazy and undisciplined on almost everything else, but he understands uh, the amount of power and the number of votes that he can gain from just towing the line on judges. And we saw that throughout his presidency. You know, he he would go out and say all kinds of crazy things on all kinds of subjects. But when it came to the court and when it came to the Supreme Court and justices, he kept his mouth shut. And that is how he convinced Anthony Kennedy to step down. Uh, and and that was pretty much the decisive moment uh, in his presidency until, until, you know, Amy Coney Barrett came along. So, um, you know, he changed the dynamic completely. <laughs> When we come back, can progressives steal from this conservative playbook? This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Mark Joseph Stern says aside from money and influence, the Federalist Society provides its members with one more crucial tool, a framework for looking at the law it's called originalism. 
it encourages jurists to look at their cases through the lens of what the framers of the Constitution intended way back at the founding of the country. It says they have to be aggressively neutral about the law. And you could hear this framework in action last week during oral arguments. Correct, Your Honor. As I understand it, you're arguing that the Constitution's silent and therefore neutral on the question of abortion. In other words, that the Constitution's neither pro-life nor pro-choice on the question of abortion, but leaves the issue for the people of the states. This was a point that Brett Kavanaugh in particular hit on over and over again. And this was an attempt, I think, to frame Roe and Casey as caving to kind of special interest groups, that when the Supreme Court um, enshrined abortion rights in the Constitution, that it was picking a side in a contentious debate um, that, in fact, has nothing to do with the Constitution. Because the Constitution doesn't mention abortion. Of course. Right, because the Constitution doesn't mention the word abortion. Now, of course, the Constitution doesn't use the word self-defense. The Constitution doesn't use the words the right to remain silent. The Constitution doesn't use the words uh, unlimited campaign financing. You know, we could go down the line, but but this has always been the talking point. And so I think what Kavanaugh was was trying to, to say was by overturning Roe, we're just restoring a fair debate. And we will really be kind of guardians of democracy because we will stay out of it. We're not going to put our thumb on the scale uh, for either side the way that Roe did. We're just going to stay out of it. And, and the people can resolve this themselves, either through the state legislatures or through Congress. Something else I noticed watching the arguments last week is that the whole progressive case seemed to rest on precedent. The lawyers kept referencing it, basically saying women should have a right to abortion because that right has existed for like 50 years. And that argument did not hold with these justices. Like Kavanaugh was pointing out, precedent sometimes wrong. And he was, you know, bringing up civil rights cases and saying, well, you know, if we'd kept with precedent, we wouldn't have these very important decisions. Right. Brown v. Board. Do you think that pointed to a place where progressives really need to change tactics? Yes. Um, and and let me put it this way. The, the focus on precedent was obviously strategic, right? Because the, uh, the liberals and, and liberal lawyers understand that six justices just don't believe that the 14th Amendment protects reproductive freedom at all. So the focus on precedent was designed um, in part to kind of inspire the justices to stand by the wisdom of their predecessors, but also to scare them a little bit and make them worry that overturning precedent is going to shake the foundation of the court, um, that it's going to uh, shake public trust in the institution, and that as that trust falls, the court's own authority might fall. And we could reach a point where the court is just ignored because it's revealed itself to be a political body that shifts back and forth with its new membership. But that seems to be John Roberts' nightmare. But I don't know if Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett are thinking about that very much. Exactly right, because Republicans have called this bluff, because Republicans have managed to get a solid six-justice conservative majority, 
And they've managed to hold on to it when Democrats have a trifecta. And they've secured promises from people like Joe Manchin that court expansion will never happen. And so it's getting harder and harder every day to game out a scenario where the Supreme Court overturns Roe and ends up losing its power. It looks like the court is going to be able to just keep trudging on, doing whatever it wants and forcing everyone to comply because Democrats don't have the spine. And Kavanaugh, he was a GOP operative. He understands this. Amy Coney Barrett, she's a smart woman. She gets it. They just did not buy this legitimacy argument. And Democrats put all of their faith in it. So as soon as we heard them kind of dismissing it, it was obvious that that Rose days were numbered. Okay, so you've really laid out how this argument from 30 years back changed things for conservatives, and especially for how they think about abortion. It also supercharged the Federalist Society and and created this world where it looks like Roe versus Wade is about to be potentially overturned. I wonder if you look at the argument we saw last week and think it's going to have a similar effect on progressives. So there's there's a couple different ways it could play out. Um, my gut instinct that was a deep is <laughs> my gut instinct is no. Um, Whoa! I, I just I just don't think that progressives have the discipline that conservatives did um, to the, the kind of single minded focus on building an infrastructure to lift people to power. Okay, if they did have the discipline. What would it look like? If they did have the discipline, it would look like figuring out how to filter out all of the bad faith nonsense that the right constantly flings at uh, legal liberals to sort of confuse and sidetrack them. It would look like them being willing to stand up and say, overturning Roe is monstrous and wrong. It would look like them actually saying we need to engage with politics directly and find wealthy and powerful benefactors who are going to kind of fund our rise the way that the Federalist Society did. So you're talking about like building up the legal establishment and sort of recognizing that that has value politically. And so political parties should fund that. They shouldn't just expect that it exists for them. Yeah, uh, political parties and private interest groups. I mean, uh, you know, not to sound conspiratorial, but the Kochs funded a great deal of the Federalist Society's activities. And just the fact that you could get free lunch at FedSoc events in law school probably accounts for at least 5% of their membership. Having the money uh, behind you to do this, to fly, uh, you know, budding young minds out to Denver for a conference, to host a big seminar where everyone critiques each other's papers about some big legal issue, the, the kind of luxe lifestyle that FedSoc uh, introduces to its members. Liberals don't have that at all. The lesson I sort of take looking at what just happened last week is that progressives are in a long, long game. It took 30 years to get from that Casey decision to where we are now. It took 20 years to get from Roe to Casey. 
And they have to just be so aggressive every step of the way. Like, don't <laughs> don't give an inch because you're going to have to keep being in these trenches for a while. Yeah, I think that's correct. I think liberals, progressives need to hunker down and get ready for a decades-long battle. I mean, Rebecca Traster wrote a great piece where she said, uh, Roe might not be restored in my lifetime. And I think that's absolutely true. It may be decades uh, until the Supreme Court reaffirms abortion rights, and it may well never happen. And so liberals need to figure out how to deal with being lost in the desert. This may last a lot longer than 40 years. They are out there in the desert. They do not know how to find their way to the promised land. Um, and they don't have any kind of model to follow except the conservative one, which doesn't work for them because they don't have the cash. Hmm. Um, and so I, I don't have an answer. I'm glad it's not my job to find one. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for telling me all this history. Always a pleasure, Mary. Thanks for having me on. Mark Joseph Stern writes about the Supreme Court for Slate. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. Each and every day, we get support and help from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Go say hi to me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Or just come back to this feed tomorrow. I'll be here waiting for you.